So, Max, how was your week? You know, it was a week. <laughs> it was a fucking week. That was a really interesting response to that first episode. I think they really just really loved it is what happened. Okay, so first to to recap a little bit on the last episode for listeners who didn't listen in full, we took on obviously the Bellows as a as a new news organization on the left that we saw and claimed harbored logics that were analogous with logics of reactionary and fascist logics. And we we use this word very particularly in this sense because we're not talking about what people want or desire. Mm -hmm. Mostly we're trying to think about the way these logics produce endpoints in the future and lead to moments and sites of active political exclusion that are deadly sites, right? And, and that carry with it the weight of life and death. And so what we're centrally critiquing in the bellows is this openness to such logics of exclusion because we see them as not only unnecessary, but also like coherent in the sense of the trajectory of liberalism's naturalization of scarcity. Right. And how that naturalization gets played out in economic conceptions of class struggle and this sort of class reductionist logic that sees all forms of organization, logos, right, speech, language as superfluous to a base struggle over scarce resources in an almost animalistic way. I'm pretty sure that when they say that we have bourgeois minds, that's meant to be a compliment. That's right. It, it means that we're really spending a lot of time thinking, well, you are at least, not me. I think when I talk. <laughs> Which is one of the things that stood out to us the most about uh, Fred Nitsky or Ted Matrakis or whatever this guy's name is. His blog post that was titled Response to Superstructure Podcast he, I mean, he took issue with us having bourgeois minds that think thoughts instead of, you know, what he thinks are working class minds that don't think because they're just dialectically absorbing like class stimuli or something like that. It was pretty brutal, but he really especially hates you. So I'm just going to read a little bit from it. He also hated that we only got through the first two paragraphs, which, you know, I mean, the rest of the article was kind of like that. And, you know, that's just his style of writing is he kind of foreshadows what the rest of it is going to be. So like the first two paragraphs are like an overture and then he copies and pastes the overture for the rest of, of the article over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> so in honor of that, we're also just going to read the first two paragraphs of this. And I'm going to jump around in it because it's fucking just Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I'll, I'll start. The hosts, Max Seho and Will Beeman, describe their approach as combining intersectionality with wonky modern monetary theory, MMT. They begin, quote, discussing my article, although they don't actually do that in a real way, around the 30-minute mark. Which, yeah, you know, it took us 30 minutes to get to this article because we were reading the about page, <laughs> which was actually really dense reading. And then Max, who's far more obnoxious than Will and does most of the talking, sounds, <laughs> sounds unmistakably like he is trying to figure out what he thinks in real time. What I love to say about this is, first of all, Fred, um, welcome to the club of people who hate me. Uh, it's a fun place to be. 
Um, I am the leader of this club. I tell Max all the time that I uh, don't hate him. Ugh. That's how this dynamic works. It's disgusting. I, it's disgusting. I, I just have to swallow it and lie. <laughs> But also, I love this part of that, how I think out loud in real time, because like, it's true that I do that. But that's also just because I try to think about what I say before I say it, which which is really elitist of you. Do not do that on this podcast. Fred doesn't think he reacts to material circumstances. So because we have to get through all two of these paragraphs, we should probably keep. Yeah, we're going to stop them. thinking thoughts. You know, I'm just going to skip down to to another hit. This elite bourgeois concoction, so contrary to common sense, it's no surprise that they take issue with my connection between common sense, Latin census communis. <laughs> Rome is in the base. We've we've known this for a long time. Mussolini knew it. Yeah, exactly. Like it, words that can go back to Latin. Those are not thoughts they describe real material western objects so so he says just as fish swim in water without knowing what water is they have a sense of it so too do workers swim in capitalist exploitation without knowing the phrase theory of surplus value but you can bet they have a sense that they're contributing more value to their employer than they're being paid for so if fish swimming in the ocean is the metaphor for workers being exploited. I'm trying, what's the end game here? Because like fish need water. So <laughs> also workers aren't animals. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the most important point. He's literally dehumanizing workers by appealing to some kind of- Communosensa. Yeah, universal animalistic experience that- we all share, which really, you know, as we're going to get into our discussion of political economy, you know, they they can only imagine universalism as a concrete common denominator, which gets us into um, what I wanted to use as our launch point because we're, we're done with, with Fred. Yeah, Fred. Uh, sorry. He'll say we couldn't even get through two paragraphs and and he'll be right. Yeah, we, we could get through even less. Yeah, it's, sorry, Fred. It happens. You understand it. This is my base intuition just manifesting. <laughs> so this is somebody who, as far as I can tell, is not a contributor for the Bellows. It was just on Twitter. And so I'm not going to call <laughs> this person's name out or, or any of the tweets I, I just because they were actually more substantive points than calling us uh you know bourgeois minds disconnected from our animal class instincts uh be- woke woke mmters who think and use their uh non-brainstem part of their brains yeah use the use the non-material part of the brain the one that's in charge of gender and things like that um <laughs> so yeah this was um somebody said who did not like the podcast, sorry. Um, Somebody said, apparently prioritizing emergency surgeries over gender reassignment surgeries is bad. So, I mean, this is a great launching off point for us in so many different directions because this is going to be our political economy episode. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're, we're gonna, we're touching on all of these things because, you know, we talk about culture, about media, about money, and we analogize all of these things to each other because there's a lot of different ways to, to skin this cat. And this really is a paradigm shift that we are trying to be a small part of in, in tying a lot of things together. But on the political economy end, this idea of emergency surgeries 
counterposed with gender reassignment surgeries, where emergency surgeries, I guess, are imagined as surgeries that are necessary for everyone, right? They're a concrete universal, whereas gender reassignment surgeries are like a particular that's not important to the universal, whereas emergency surgeries, that must refer to something that, you know, applies to the entire working class. And therefore, it's a more legitimate basis for solidarity for them than some kind of particular superfluous surgery. So one thing to say about that, first of all, is that gender reassignment surgery, you know, is not superfluous, obviously. People go through all kinds of real material pain that is related to their mental health. You know, just because this person doesn't think mental health is important, really that's, that just says something about their own priorities because there's not an actual medical procedure that every single member of the working class needs, like, at this minute. This idea of universal goods, universal healthcare, there's all kinds of medical specializations and medical skills and things that, that go into it. And th this idea that there is... A direct cost benefit of regular surgeries not happening because gender reassignment surgeries are happening is homogenizing these differentiated skills and just assuming that whatever surgeons are working on gender reassignment surgeries they they could they're already qualified to work on some other kind of surgery right but let's let's actually do political economy let's do schemas right you can describe a disembodied production schema of, you know, this labor, this means of production, this surgery, but that is not reproducing itself because all of the things that are used to produce the inputs for that themselves are produced inputs. So being engaged in circular production is not a property of any one individual production schema. That's a property of the production schema of the economy as a whole. So setting aside that there's not one kind of surgeon who can like do everything and you, you can't just talk about a scarcity of surgeons right now and trade-offs between different kinds of surgeries, setting that aside, the fact that every production schema relies on inputs that are, that are produced somewhere else in this system and that every part of this system is involved indirectly in reproducing another part of it is that... What he sees is the natural scarcity of surgeons that we see right now. That was a planned scarcity. That was a decision that was made by economic decision makers who are legally empowered to make that decision through private property, through corporate charters. There are legally constructed causal mechanisms through which individual acting people are already doing economic planning. And this is crucial because fundamentally, these people are neoclassicals. They are naturalizing a market. They imagine themselves replacing supply and demand, which the heterodox economist Fred Lee rejected completely, and which we should probably have an episode in the future called Supply and Demand is Bullshit, really getting into mm -hmm. what the whole purpose of the price mechanism is and why it's problematic. But, you know, this, this gets into the fact that yesterday we made the provisioning decisions that created the scarcity today. And that's why it's not actually a duck or a dodge for us to be talking in the future tense 
about the decisions we can make today, the legal commitments we can make today, right, in a rights-based framework to provision mental health care unconditionally for transgender reassignment surgeries, for health counseling, for, you know, all kinds of, you know, quote-unquote, particular non-emergency healthcare services, we can make that decision today to provision those in the future. And this is a really, really important concept in heterodox microeconomics, like the kind that Fred, that Fred Lee, the good Fred, the kind that he supported, which was like, you have to situate any economic entity, whether it is a household or a firm, like any entity that has a balance sheet and is legally empowered to manage certain means of production in the input-output structure of the entire economy, you have to situate that entity in a circular system of production because that's the only way that they could exist. And in doing so, that means that they have to be themselves concerned about their own reproduction, which means that they are not using up and maximizing all of their resources right now because they have to build in recurring costs to their accounting structures. And this is where the term going concern comes from. It's a 19th century accounting practice, basically, that started then because, you know, before that, there was this idea of corporations as economic actors, you know, just being like a temporary charter to, you know, get these diamonds from some place in the global south and kill a bunch of people. And then you'll have a corporate charter to do that on behalf of the crown, basically. And then we will separate the loot essentially. But as there's an ideological change during the modern period that naturalizes markets, it also naturalizes the idea of corporations as not finite entities with finite existences, but as going entities, ongoing entities, similar to going people as ongoing entities, right? So it makes sense at that point for accounting practices to start treating corporations as entities with an ongoing existence. And our point and, you know, Lee's point that we're, you know, kind of deriving this from is that the economy has an ongoing existence. It necessarily is circular. And that doesn't mean that it is limited to only reproducing itself, right? We're not Schraffians. The input-output structure framework is, you know, Piero Schraffa, and we want to take from that, Lee wants to take from that, I don't want to just plagiarize Lee and not credit him, but (laughs) he differentiates what Schraffa calls the social surplus approach, you know, which is there are these surplus goods and then a circular economy that is being used to produce all the intermediate goods that go into producing those surplus goods. Lee wants to actually situate that into historical time and have legally embodied agency, human agency, making these decisions. And through time, through this circular production that happens through time, changing it slightly, you know? The economy, as a going concern, reproduces itself over time but not exactly. And this is just critically important because you have fundamentally at the core of it, a creative act to decide what surplus goods, surplus here being defined as everything that is not a good 
that is being used intermediately to produce other goods, right? All of those intermediate goods that are always already being produced because it's circular production, all of those intermediate goods exist as a byproduct for all those goods produced for end use and consumption. And it's the demand for these goods, which Lee calls the social surplus, uh, distinct from surplus value, because the whole point of the social surplus is that it is differentiated. You know, there's not an abstract value at, at the core of it, right? This idea of value conceptually, and I know that we're just going to hear immediately that, you know, we just don't understand what Marx meant by surplus value. No, we do actually understand we're just not talking about surplus value. We're talking about a social surplus, which is a differentiated, heterogeneous matrix of goods and services that are being produced. And it's the agency of those who are legally empowered to initiate investment to transform that system qualitatively, to decide to produce a different output, a qualitatively different output. And in producing a qualitatively different output, also requiring a qualitatively different kind of labor power and requiring a qualitatively different kinds of means of production, different knowledge base used to produce those means of production. All of these categories of what is useful labor, what's unuseful labor, who is disabled, who's not disabled, who's productive, who's unproductive, these are all premised on the agency to decide what we're producing in the first place, because that decision is what decides how we're producing it, and therefore decides what is useful for producing it and who has value in the society what were you gonna say i've been talking a lot that's true you're you're more obnoxious this time now will yeah um <laughs> stop thinking i want to like translate this sort of lesian circular reproduction model and and perhaps chart another path up this sort of cascade toward these concepts that we're trying to teach and i also have to say like i would subscribe to a Substack or Patreon that's just like Will Beeman teaches Fred Lee. Uh, so <laughs> we're this is MMT, so he just he just willed it into existence. He's legally empowered to to make that call. That's correct. So it's funny, like a little theme that's coming up in this episode a few times is uh is Heidegger, which I don't think I prepared for nor really expected. But the way you're talking about circular like going concerns of a circular nature and reproduction and the way the past is determining the the present by and in the present we determine the future it reminds me of what heideggerians call hermeneutic circularity and the the sort of central schema of being in time being in time being uh, heidegger's first and most popular work from 1927 where a being Right, a being in a world that is sort of identified, though with important, uh, long-lasting discrepancies between a sort of human subject and then this being that is in the world being there as one that Heidegger describes a being, and in a way that I'm going to try and analogize to a sort of going concern here, as a being who is thrown into a world that is fallen in that world that is sort of subsumed into structures of that world and that projects a future into that world and this throne fallen projection is one that is circular it's historical 
it's futurist, but it's also circular. And so I'm going to really try and concretize this. For Heidegger, there's, and importantly, we want to also differentiate ourselves from Heidegger's schema of the individuated being in a world and think more about a sort of economy-wide being yeah. in a world. Be- because being in the world is circular reproduction, right? Like it implies a world that is reproducing itself and that individuated being in the world is indirectly involved in the reproduction of the world itself and of every other individuated being. Exactly. And so importantly also, though, this is something that's crucial in which we want to sever from the Heideggerian lineage of this sort of circularity. What Lee affords and allows for is that being thrown into a world through one's historical situation in a world, right? Like you are at the level of an individuated subject, right? You are born into a world that you don't have any control over, right? You are born into it. You're born into these cultural forms, these linguistic forms, these economic forms that you don't have agency over, you don't choose, right? You're literally thrown into it. Except what we would crucially say is that this relationship of thrownness is one of legal construction, right? And that is the crux of the Lysian historical time move, which is to say that our situation right now in the place in that we are in the structures of prioritization that we sit within is one that is variable and malleable. Mm-hmm. And so what we do in being thrown into this schema of subsumption under these structures of prioritization is we act in a world with the levers that are in our midst to hand at various levels of agency throughout the social strata and scalar nature of production processes. Right. Right. Like accountants act here and workers act there and bosses act there, and managers act over here. And th- and throughout all of that, we reproduce the world analogically, right? Mm-hmm. Via an entire interdependent production process. And so not the individuated Heidegger. This is a social process of being thrown into legal structures mm-hmm. of mediation and a legally constructed production process that we fall or inhere within because there is no outside of said overlapping interdependent production processes right and so that's this fallenness and then what do we do we actively reproduce this variably right there's variations because we're dependent upon the social surplus as you were discussing from historical constructions of the production process, right? We're dependent upon the outputs of previous productions to be used as inputs for the next series of future productions that we project into the future. And so that's another way to get at this circularity. And it's another way to think about how we as producers can change and refigure and democratize and struggle for the production process within which we are embedded. Mm -hmm. And in that embeddedness, we exert through 
unions, through protesting in the streets, through every node of power that we can leverage, through marginal nodes and marginalized experiences of the exploitation inherent to our historical construction of the production process that need to change. And we struggle for new rights, new commitments, and new affordances within this circular reproduction process so that we can guarantee that the false structure that was being set up by this tweet between emergency surgeries versus gender reassignment surgeries, not only do we reject that value system, but we have the capacity to include all those surgeries that are needed, right? That are needed for people's physical and public health as a right that then gets embedded in the historical framework and reproduces itself over time. And so is achieved over time through active decision-making processes and active commitments of law that vest at each point in the system through the agency of each point in the system. And so this is a rejection of any articulation of the natural quote-unquote processes of production and reproduction. Full stop. And what it what it situates is the symbolic and superstructural forms of mediating this circular reproduction process as a whole. Speaking of the praxis that comes out of this, you know, circular input-output structure where everything is indirectly involved in the production and reproduction of everything else. And organized by the infinity of the, mon- of the money relation, importantly. Right. You know, the, the main kind of criticism that we've been getting and that we anticipated, which is the reason why we're actually doing this podcast in the first place, is because, you know, there's this idea that MMT is... It's about ideas. It's not about real politics, right? So like that stuff about taxes don't fund spending, that's all neat and interesting, but we want to talk about power, quote unquote. So, okay, let's talk about power. And specifically, let's talk about what a left praxis that is bottom up and is affirming this framework and making the framework intelligible to people in the way that strikes make the reliance on on labor for the economy to work immediately you know it becomes intuitive as as i think fred would say um so i i wanted to actually hand it over to you now to talk about the uni and about just some of the the organizing efforts that you're involved with right now that come out of this framework yeah so it's it's funny like people talk about the sort of posting to organizing to policy uh structure And at the end of April, I tweeted just like a joke about how universities need to issue their own uh, credit and dare the Fed to buy it. Um, Turns out this idea resonated with some people. (laughs) And so through like the Modern Money Network and and a bunch of colleagues, including Nathan Takis, uh, Scott Ferguson, William Sass, um, and Benjamin Wilson, we've been coordinating, like actually writing up policy notes um, and a sort of open letter to the higher education community to leverage this sort of credit issuance, like MMT compliant conception of like credit issuance on by university as a sort of central node in this social reproduction process 
in order to counteract and ultimately totally trans- transform the way we fund universities and fund this central sort of site of agency where the production process vests in a very particular way, not as a whole in one site, mm-hmm. but as analogously through an important and crucial site for the way we produce inputs and outputs and who, and the way we produce agents and structures of ideology and how those agents then reproduce those ideologies throughout the production process. And so um, we have these organizing efforts that are ongoing uh, to essentially get universities and consortiums of universities to issue their own script with the end game being leveraging the Federal Reserve's municipal liquidity facility to accept and, and backstop these unis, these credits, as, as essentially money, right? Essentially U.S. dollar uh, denominated script. And what this would do is would it would actually alter the site of power over what sorts of production relations get produced instead of it being right-wing legislators deciding how much funding gets allocated and how much goes to this or that, right? This actually radicalizes the decision over funding through a sort of nested apparatus of Federal Reserve's backing, which is what, you know, like this is how banking works, right? Like these essentially giving rights to issue credit to the university itself so that the university can... Can provision itself. Actively provision itself, exactly. Yeah, and this is, I think the way to think about this and the reason why, I hope I'm not spoiling too much, but the the reason why some unions have been interested in this idea is that this is using money and using an MMT framework to give workers and give working class organizations and associations and unions, give them a way to essentially demand to take over the university and keep it running. Yep. This is more similar to workers taking over a railroad or something, right? Yep. But the difference in how we would conceive of it than the kind of traditional, you know, orthodox Marxist way of understanding a worker takeover is it's not to create an autonomous factory or an autonomous university that has nothing to do with the rest of the world. The reason why it's intuitive to people as a political demand is precisely because everything in the economy is indirectly involved with the production of everything else in the economy. And therefore, the demand for universities to continue to provision themselves is a social demand. It's a demand for the social good. And it's more intuitive to people because universities are giant institutions that concentrate the rights, the legal rights over economic coordination of all kinds in this big hierarchical, you know, actor ecosystem that's called a university. But fundamentally, you know, if one university is doing that, they are not taking money from another university, right? They're not taking money from the community and making that demand. It's actually the opposite. It's a demand to be generative and productive for everybody. And because of that, it's something where the logic of how this spreads is that people see that city was deemed essential infrastructure. And therefore, it has 
a basis as essential infrastructure to demand that it has the funds to provision itself and keep running, right? A university has the basis of that because that's essential infrastructure. A hospital is essential infrastructure. It should, you know, be self-funding, blah, blah, blah. And like the point is we're all essential infrastructure and money is a public boundless utility. That's right. And, And as members of a society who are all indirectly involved in the reproduction of every other person in the society, Mm -hmm. we can demand, politicize the Federal Reserve's stranglehold over that public money. Mm -hmm. And the Federal Reserve's so-called, you know, like quasi-market actor thing where it can kind of give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to whether it's good for the market if this essential infrastructure gets the funding that it needs to survive. Like, no, like... The fact that it is essential infrastructure is self-justifying for it getting those funds. Correct. And so ultimately, I mean, yeah, if it's like universities get a swap line, where's my swap line? Good. You should be asking, where's your swap line? We should all be asking, you know, if this city infrastructure is so important to the world that they were able to pressure the Federal Reserve to accept their credit in exchange for dollars and in exchange for funding effectively giving them the ability to financially provision themselves and create credit. If they were able to do that, why can't we, right? Like, why can't we in the most bottom-up way possible? And of course, it's going to be in the most bottom-up way possible. This is the point. This is why it's about power. This is not about some, you know, lofty ideas. Like, no, like, it's going to have to be unions who are making this demand. Do you think university administrators give a shit whether the university continues to provision itself for the community? No, it's going to be community members who see their dependence on the university and all of the university stakeholders wanting the university to continue to exist. It's going to be graduate students who can't pay their rent, who went on strike in the COLA movement. I, whom am one of those strikers. And it's going to be... What do you mean? I thought grad students were superstructure. Are you telling me they're workers? (laughs) Oh my God, they're workers. We don't right. we don't swim in the ocean with the rest of the workers, though. No, no. We fly through the clouds. <laughs> and this is crucial, right? This is where the intersectionality point comes in, right? Because there's a big infinity sign at the nexus of all of these sites of reproduction, that is the money relation, right? That is but money is a boundless public utility. That is the only way in which we can actually name the affordance of all subject positions in an intersectional framework Mm -hmm. for the struggle to provision and reproduce the circular nature of our economy into the future as a whole. Yeah. Without that infinity sign, we end up in a scarce logic of fighting over scarce space and scarce resources and we end up in the fight that the bellows wants to have right and that is precisely the fight that we actually do not want to have because it's premised on on something that's not true that's based on something that's not true and it's why we want to counterpose the tendency the sort of fascist tendency of the of the bellows with the complete rejection of the whole entire schema of scarcity logics that feed into that tendency and feed into a counter tendency, right? Yeah. The Bellows can go fight down in this make-believe world of scarce space, right? And for the and the necessity of exclusion. 
We want to fight over what inclusion looks like and what the active provisioning of society looks like. And fundamentally, I, I want to pull back from there now, as I think we've articulated mm-hmm. that vision. To think about another response that we've been getting, which is for our Agamben episode number two, and then again for the Bellows episode, which mm-hmm. is people have been saying, well, you're not taking pres- like the text that we read and the ideas that we read on their own terms in an isolated vacuum, seeing them as their best selves in order to then make very specific determinations of a critique that inheres very specifically to this one text and then depart from it subtly in a very specific way. Right. And there's this is a this is on purpose, right? We're being reflexive about this. The literally one response was, why do you have to critique via analogy? Mm-hmm. And if you haven't noticed, it's a word yeah. that's come up a lot. Whenever we say analogical, we we literally mean analogy. That's right. And analogy is the structure of this reproduction process where every site relates analogically to the entirety of the, the, the production process as a whole, of the going concern and the various going concerns along the scalar structure of the quote-unquote economy, right? Of society. Right. The The individual household, the individual firm is a going household and a going firm precisely because they're situated in a going economy, right? You're a going person. How long can you go without eating food? Right. That implies that the production of food is ongoing. Correct, right? It, it, it's always ongoing. And we see this now in the COVID crisis. Like, it's ongoing. This is the this is the political problematic that we're in, right? Yeah. Is how to actively provision in specific ways that ensure that all levels of what are ongoing continue to go on. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so this is the way we relate to the structure. And this is like, it's analogical. And this is, of course, the central problem for like someone like Marx, right? Who sees money as getting in the way of direct relation, mm-hmm. right? And this is the central gambit, I, I think, of this of MM, this sort of MMT-informed critique of Marx, which is there was never direct relation with production. It's always analogical. There's always credit and coordination and social processes that outstrip the individual relation between two particulars. Yeah, there's always macro circularity in which going entities are producing. That's right. And so what we are performing in our critique of texts is the way they sit in nexes of analogy, right? It's not to say that the bellows is fascist, right? That's not what we're saying. Because is here would imply a direct sort of unequivocal sameness. Mm -hmm. What we're implying is is that the bellows relates to logics that it carries with it via the analogies that it portends, that it offers, that it structures in a way that evokes these sort of fascist logics, not directly and completely and utterly, but partially through analogy, mm-hmm. right? And this is how we all relate. And this is how ideas relate as a whole, right? This is why I would say that Agamben's ideas are analogical to eco-fascist ideas. That doesn't mean Agamben is an eco-fascist. It means that his ideas logically 
are structured in relation to those ideas Mm -hmm. and that fundamentally they work together and that these ideas are coordinating always, right? They're always coordinating in discursive structures of meaning making and creation. And like this is the fundamental structure of language as such as well, right? When I talk about a cup, you think of a cup, but you don't, it's not a direct one-to-one relation. This is, of course, the post-structural critique, right? Mm-hmm. It's an analogy. There's things that are added and things that are lost in that relation. But that is the structure of meaning-making. That's the problematic of meaning-making. And so analogical critique is, a, is critique that we perform through a sort of articulation of the both concealed and then unconcealed structures that are operating in the assumptions Mm -hmm. of particular ideas. And we perform that through analogical articulation and then, of course, calling and referencing the the analogies we see like as active critical agents in an ecosystem of ideas that we find problematic. Very well said. I think that that's probably a good place to stop this episode. I also want to flag for listeners that we're aware that we don't have any intro or outro music yet. We're working on it. We want to make sure that whatever we do pick for that and for all of that other kind of production side stuff is going to be something that we stick with for a long time. And that involves talking to artists and going in the creative commons and all of that kind of stuff. So just bear with us. We're going to we're going to live up to the name superstructure a little bit more on the on the media production side in the future. That's right. Turns out we're thrown into a production process of aesthetics. <laughs>